uh, I personally go through a phase like every three years or so when I you know, teach this class, I like rediscover the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is part of the reason why I really enjoy teaching this. But I thought I might uh, you know, get you thinking a little bit about, you know, I have two questions, right? How is the Holy Spirit overemphasized and how is the Holy Spirit underemphasized? And this is in Christianity at large, right? So when we talk about the Holy Spirit being overemphasized, how have you seen that done? He has his helper role. He kind of gets shoehorned into whether he wants it or not, being a helper and just a helper. Like, okay. You know, I told, I mentioned, sometimes I think of him as God's buddy. That's like a problem. Okay. When you you think about Christianity at large, right, have you guys ever seen any ministries or heard of any ministries that seem to overemphasize the Holy Spirit? Definitely more feelings based. Uh More like charismatic, but definitely I would say more over spirit, spiritualized maybe. Okay. Kind of feelings based. Every feeling seems to be of the Spirit. What might be some other ways? However the Spirit moves you. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's, that's a pretty popular phrase with... Yeah. You know, how's the Spirit leading? How's the Spirit moving you? For some, there's a sense that you can't do anything without sort of a, a direct God told me to do it sort of a thing. And so people <clears throat> are waiting or demanding God to give them the Spirit to directly tell them what to do all the okay. time. And that supersedes any other counsel or uh-huh. even the Scriptures... Uh, and that's just a very different way of approaching the Christian life. Yeah. Yeah, where's the spirit leading today? Makes life exciting, right? Other ways you might have seen it uh, overemphasized? Like um, knowing you're right with God because like you got filled with the spirit and like things started happening. Yeah, okay. Like what does it even mean to be filled with the spirit? and? I mean, and that's often done by right, speaking in tongues. And you know you're saved if you spoke in tongues. Okay, other ways you might see it be overemphasized? I, the irony is you really can't overemphasize the spirit. Mm-hmm. Right? I think some of the times that, even like some of the examples of overemphasis, <clears throat> is a failure to actually uh-huh. acknowledge, like, we impose our own ideas as to who the spirit is and how he functions mm-hmm. without actually letting scripture or, or it, it define who he is. Yeah, when properly understood, you can't overemphasize right. him, right? But here would be a couple of thoughts, like, um, like revelation of the spirit, right, as opposed to revelation from scripture. Um like praying to the Holy Spirit. Did you know about how many times do people pray to the Holy Spirit in Scripture? You guys know? Zero. The Holy Spirit is never prayed to in Scripture. Um, maybe looking at Pentecost over the cross, right, as far as an emphasis there. So there, there is a sense, like in Pentecostal worlds, right, where it's a Spirit-led movement, <laughs> Right, where you see, let's say, the dove instead of a cross, and the idea is that the spirit is working, he's moving. Um, we're going to say something, Judy? Yeah, I, I have a question. Uh-huh. Do some people believe that you're all killed 
by the Holy Spirit. Like if you're really sick and then you get well, you've been healed by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and some people do, right? Because of the yeah, spiritual that's gift. That's just a question. Yeah. <clears throat> So, I, and I think, you know, you look at certain TV shows like that cover Pentecostal revivals and stuff, and you see people shaking, dancing, getting drunk with the Spirit. Uh, and what's our internal reaction to that? You know, just being honest. It's fake. <laughs> yeah, you see this fake, it doesn't seem, doesn't seem real, right? Like they're just kind of working themselves into like this froth. Right, so that's kind of one side of the pendulum, right? Where we kind of see that and we're, we're troubled by it. We're like, hmm, not sure about that. But then you kind of get into how's the Holy Spirit underemphasized? It's just it's kind of there, and that's it. Uh -huh. it's like its only purpose is like you get saved, it moves, and it's done. Uh huh. We don't talk about them. Uh-huh. Yeah, does it come up in conversation? Yeah, it's interesting. I, on my uh, shelf, I have <coughs> Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. Okay, it's 833 pages long. Do you know how many t pages are devoted to the Holy Spirit? Anybody want to take a guess? 17. Huh? You got 17? It's 10. Right? 10 pages devoted to the Holy Spirit. Right? How many of the Father and Son? Couldn't tell you. I just know it's 10, but I'm sure it's 12. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you're I'm sure it's like 50. It probably is. Like, did you look at the work of the Holy Spirit versus the work of Christ, the work of the Father? So there, there, is, there can be a natural um, discomfort when people talk about the Holy Spirit because we often associate it with the excesses of it, right? And when that happens, we can be so underemphasizing that we almost forget about the member of the Trinity. Does that make sense? So, I mean, why is it important to... I mean, what's the danger? And if we were to pick you know, which side... We're on here, right? Do you think overemphasize or under? Under or over? Under. Probably under, right? Now we see what the danger is for overemphasize. We can like list them off, right? But what would be the danger of underemphasizing the Holy Spirit? We forget He's God. Okay, you forget He's God. Mm -hmm. Well, and we don't understand God in His fullness. Like mm -hmm. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. Yeah. So we we are not interacting with God as he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, and we forget that when, as Christ died on the cross, he said he was leaving a helper. A helper mm -hmm. was going to replace him uh -huh. when he died on the cross. And the helper that was left was the Holy <clears throat> Spirit. And mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit is actually... Mm -hmm. The part of God that moves us to be actually saved. Yeah. As I understand. Yeah, I mean, that's really good, Judy. Um, yeah, the Holy Spirit was left as a helper, right? And I think as we're going to see, it's impossible to do ministry without the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, yeah. I have a question. Uh -huh. 
because it talks about how all scriptures being like is divinely influenced. Would that be through the Holy Spirit? Mm -hmm. That's the, okay. Yeah, it was a spirit who worked through men to write the words of God. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. I mean, so there's a, uh, yeah, so there, there are many reasons why we should study the spirit, but basically uh, he is the helper, right? The Holy Spirit is what helps us walk with God, do ministry, glorify God. So it's worth understanding, um, you know, that reality. So we're going to uh, kind of start off with... Uh, today, which is a basic understanding of who is the Holy Spirit. So there's going to be a lot of Bible reading, so everybody have their, you know, their Bible ready. I'm going to assign a few verses, so Isaiah 11.2, uh, Chris, can you get Isaiah 11.2, and then I'm going to kind of work my way through the back. Okay, Leah, you're going to get Isaiah 40.13. Um, Joe, you get 1 Corinthians 12.11. Drew, can you get 1 Corinthians 2.11? Abby, can you get Romans 15.30? And then we'll go ahead and skip. Keith, you can get that 1 Thessalonians 4.3. So we're going to look at the first part as he is a person. I think one misconception of the Holy Spirit is that he's a force, right? Like just power. But um, we're going to see that he actually has a personality. So, Isaiah 11, 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Okay, wisdom, counsel, right? It, yeah, he has intelligence. Uh, 40, 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Okay. Your rhetorical question, what man shows him his counsel? No one can because you know, he is extraordinarily omnisciently intelligent. He has a will, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit to apportions to each one individually as he wills. So he's talking about spiritual gifts, and he's saying that the Holy Spirit gives each member makes the determination of which member gets what spiritual gift. Okay, so he makes decisions. Uh, knowledge of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Okay, we'll talk more about this a little bit later on, but he knows, he has a deep knowledge, comprehensive knowledge of God. And then uh, Romans 15.30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Okay, so you see the love of the Spirit. Uh, we also see that he speaks, he intercedes, he commands, he teaches, he testifies, he reproves, guides, and prays. So knowing that the Holy Spirit is a person with the will, what do you suppose he wants to do? So, uh, Keith, you got that one? For this is the will of God, your sanctification is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Okay. So what do you think the will is of the Holy Spirit? Based off of that passage. Our sanctification. Our sanctification, right? And what's meant by sanctification? Anybody want to give a layman's definition of that? Process of getting closer to God. 
Uh, getting closer to God, okay, and a little bit more specific too. Yeah. It's your life. It's like the mm-hmm. entire lifetime is just ups and downs, like through like sin and like righteousness mm-hmm. and just the growth. Okay. Yeah, the process of being more like Christ. Like to be sanctified is to be separate. So it's to become less like the world, more like God, less like your old self, more like your new self. It's become more and more like Christ. So that is the will of the Holy Spirit, right? This will of God is your sanctification. It's the sanctification of the church. And so that's his desire, which perfectly overlaps with God's desire. Okay? So that's his purpose, that's his will, is sanctification. Um, as we'll talk later on, he's the active presence of God in this world right now. Instead of having, like, the disciples were able to follow Jesus. Jesus is gone, he sends the Holy, the Holy Spirit so that we can be guided and shaped and mentored by him. Then you get into his deity, and this is something I often ask people, right? Is the Holy Spirit God? And they'll say yes. And then I ask them the next question, can you prove it with scripture? And usually I get, well, it's, it's in there somewhere, okay? So let's look at Matthew 28, 19. And Darla, I'll have you read this one. And this is a real fact. This is probably the easiest passage to prove his deity. Okay, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, I want you to notice something. Name is singular. Okay? Name is singular. So when talking about baptizing them in the name, whose name? Jason, what do you see? We would say it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Same singular. Same name. Mm-hmm. And and you have to keep in mind, name is more than just like a description to distinguish your name from somebody else's. It, back in that day, it was really like your kind of a sense of identity. Like stopping the name of the law, the authority of the law. And so the, it wouldn't make sense to have the Father being divine, the Son being divine, and the Holy Spirit not being divine, Right? There's divinity by association. He's also described as holy, right? So as you just read, Darla, right? The Holy Spirit, right? So there's many spirits out there, but there's one that's uniquely identified as holy, okay? In, in its very essence, right? We become holy. Uh, the Holy Spirit has always been holy. Uh, let's go ahead and flip the page. Let's all go to um, 1 Corinthians 2.11. Malachi, I'll have you read that one. person's thoughts except their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Okay. So it says, no one knows the thoughts of God but the spirit of God. 
how would that passage prove his divinity? So this will require some theological reasoning. I'll see what you guys can get. How does this passage prove his divinity? God is infinite. Okay. And so in order to know an infinite God, you have to be infinite yourself. So exactly. Did you guys catch that? That was really good. Right? If God's infinite, and if his knowledge is infinite, to exhaustively know infinite knowledge would require what? That the person is infinite himself. Right? So when you're in heaven, will you know all the thoughts of God? You'll know more and more and more over time, but we will never catch up to his infiniteness. So the fact that the Holy Spirit uh, knows the knowledge of God would make him omniscient, right? All-knowing, just as God is all-knowing. Right? So this is, in my opinion, this is probably the most powerful argument for um, the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Okay, any questions about that? Okay, great reasoning. Uh, then another passage, this is interesting, where he's cross-identified. So, okay, is it Avery? Okay, you're going to get Acts 28, uh, 25, and Will, you get Isaiah 6, 8 through, 11, or, sorry, 8 through 9. Okay? And then uh, Aiden, be ready for Hebrews 9, 14. We're going to kind of work our way down the aisle, okay? Or the road. Okay, so there's going to be an Old Testament quote in Acts. So note, it, note who is saying it. Okay, go ahead, Avery. Do you have it? Uh, yeah. yeah. And when they agreed, not among themselves, they departed. After that, Paul had spoken one word. Well, spake the Holy Ghost by uh, Theseus the prophet unto our fathers. Okay. So, Holy Spirit spoke. Yeah, go ahead. And they are 6, 6 9. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Yeah. And who will go for us? Okay. So that's the cross-reference. So it's the Spirit in one passage in the New Testament. But in the original context in the Old Testament, it's the Lord, right? So the Lord spoke through the, the Spirit. Um, another passage, Hebrews 9, 14. <coughs> How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God? Okay, so what's the theological reasoning there for him being divine? He's eternal, right? So we're eternal in that we're like a ray, right? Kind of going this way into eternity. Bad eternity, sorry. Right? This is humanity. So we're eternal in one way. When God is eternal, he goes both ways forever, right? So he shares, again, just like omniscience is something that's unique to God, this kind of eternity is unique to God, right? And so earlier on, we talked about how the Spirit was present during creation. The fact that he was present during creation means that he's not on this timeline, he's on this one. Okay? Is it making sense to you guys? <clears throat> okay, Julie got the next passage. He's... Um, night present. That's Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Mm -hmm. 
Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. And if I make a bed in hell, behold, you are there. Mm-hmm. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Okay. So where can I flee from your spirit, right? That describes omnipresent. Like there, there's no place where you can go where the spirit is not present. Right? And, and that's actually one of the passages we use to talk about God's omnipresence, but it's through the spirit. Um, omniscient, and Tara, since you're already there, I want you to go ahead and read that. These things God has revealed to us through the spirit, for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Again, we kind of already talked about that one. Uh, he's omnipresent, Luke, or, I'm sorry, omnipotent, Luke 1.35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will become holy, the Son of God. Okay. So again, that's an attribute unique to God, shared by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is divine. All right? Any questions about that? I always found these passages great because you always hear about him being the Holy Spirit, he's divine. And it's like, oh yeah, well, there it is, right? God's divinity, God the Father's divinity is obvious. Um, So is God the Son in Jesus, but God the Spirit. So a lot of these truths, what type of power does the Holy Spirit have? Noah? Well, the same as God. Yeah, the same as God, right? He can do whatever God can do, He can do, which would mean that He can do anything. So, in light of the previous truths, to what degree can the Holy Spirit carry out His will? Yeah, there's nothing really stopping Him. And remember, you know, the will of God is your sanctification, right? And so this is kind of a real radical truth in that when somebody becomes a Christian, they're born again, and where is the Holy Spirit at that point? Right? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, right? So that's an incredible truth to think about how when someone becomes a Christian, The Holy Spirit, who is the third person in the Trinity, actually lives within you. Right? It's not an incarnation like like Jesus was united with, you know, you have divinity, you know, fused with uh, humanity in some way. But there is a sense where the Holy Spirit actually resides inside of you. The third person of the Trinity... He has all the power of God, has a special relationship with you, resides in you to carry out his will. So that's why I always like rediscover like the Holy Spirit. I'm like, oh yeah. Does that make sense? And there's all kinds of implications of that. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk now about um, you know, what does his presence inside of you really mean? And um, really, the, the Old Testament kind of hints at the ministry of the Holy Spirit inside the believer, but it's the most clarified when it comes to uh, the Pentecost. And so Luke was all about 
Jesus, right? But there's many references to the Holy Spirit in Luke. But then there's a transition where we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Acts. And one of the key passages is found in Pentecost. And so here's a little background on Pentecost if you don't know too much about it. Uh, Pentecost was the second of three great harvest festivals of Judaism, coming between the Passover and Tabernacles. In the New Testament, it is referred to as Pentecost, which means 50th in Greek. In the Old Testament, it is referred to as the festival of weeks or of the first fruits. The first term referring to its coming a week of weeks after Passover. The second to the fact that an offering of two loaves prepared from the wheat harvest was made this day. Pentecost was reckoned as coming exactly 50 days after the first day of the Passover. As you recall, Jesus was crucified on the Passover. It was the day of solemn assembly and all, all work ceased. It was one of the most popular pilgrim festivals, even more so than Passover, which is likely due to the improved weather conditions by the time of Pentecost. So we read about it in Acts 2, 1 through 4. Remember the disciples are waiting in the upper room. Um, they're basically you know, commissioned by Jesus to be his witnesses, right? To bear witness to him. They'll receive power. Actually, let's all go to Acts chapter 1. Kind of set the stage here. So starting in Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? So he gives them this commission, right? You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to go to the ends of the earth, but wait until you receive power to do so. And then he goes up into heaven. Then they appoint a replacement for Judas, right? And this is, you know, he ascends after 40 days. And in 10 more days, this is what happens, okay? Starting in verse 1 on chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came, a, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay? So that was this climactic event where the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples 
in a very uh, unique way. So this is something that is described, not prescribed. Um, you kind of get into some interesting issues about whether or not this is normative, and we can talk about that uh, a little bit later on. But what I wanted to do right now is talk about the, the current ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay, So something happened at Pentecost which changed the way we relate to the Holy Spirit. Now, one of uh, the fun campfire conversations for theologians is to talk about what ministries of the Holy Spirit are new since Pentecost and which ones were uh, part of the Old Testament. And there's even in this church, I think there's some, some disagreement about does this ministry, what, was this true of Old Testament believers and New Testament believers, or is this ministry of the Holy Spirit unique to just New Testament believers? So what we're going to do is we're going to go through all these ministries of the Holy Spirit. All of these ministries of the Holy Spirit that we're about to describe are true of you if you're in Christ right now. And then we're going to kind of maybe reflect back a little bit about which ones are true of the Old Testament saints as well. And so the goal of all this is to kind of like inform you on two levels, right? You know, how has the Holy Spirit changed the way we do ministry since the birth of the church? And then what... Um, what ministers are active right now? Okay, any questions about that? Okay, so we'll look at the first one, um, and we'll keep on reading along. So I think all of are we on you now. So I'm gonna have you read John three five through eight when the time comes. Okay. So the first ministry we want to talk about is regeneration. Okay, an inner recreating of fallen human nature by the gracious sovereign action of the Holy Spirit. So can you get John 3, 5 through 8? Do you want me to read from mine or from the paper? Uh, just from the paper. Um, sorry, I'm scared. Okay. Sam, can you get that? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay. Titus 3.5. Yeah. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Okay. So from that passage, you guys ever heard the term be born again? It basically says that there has to be this new work done in you. Um I know a lot of times, um, you know, when I would talk to my children about, you know, why are you hitting your brother? Or why are you saying those bad words? <laughs> right? The, the reason why is, you know, they have a heart that wants to do it, right? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Um, and so what's the solution to that? To just try to change those words, Right? Like some of the reasoning in scripture is can a leopard change the spots? Right? What has to happen is regeneration. Right? You need to have a new heart. 
And that's something that the Holy Spirit gives you the moment you believe. Okay? It is, this is a very, very super important concept for conversion. Right? Conversion happens instantaneously when you have a new heart. So, is it possible to be renewed without the Holy Spirit? Can you have a new heart without the Holy Spirit? According to these passages. No. No. Why is that? Because you have to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be born again, right? And that's actually a, a question I often ask in evangelism is, you know, have you been born again? Now, it is possible uh, for someone to be born again and not know that the term that they've experienced was being born again. But when you kind of describe it to them, they'll say, yeah, there, there has been like a, a change in my life, right? Where there is a new inclination that I have that I didn't necessarily have before. Um, I have this, this disdain of sin that I didn't have before. I have this desire to maybe read the Bible that I didn't have before. Does that make sense? So it's the idea of being born again. So is it possible, right, is it possible to, to love God without being born again? Not, yeah, rightly not. So, so when you look at an Old Testament saint, were Old Testament saints born again? What do you think? You want to take a stab at this one, Joshua? No. Okay, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it talks about how they were saved through their faith. Yeah. And how they all continuously stumbled and yeah. kept messing up. Mm-hmm. So, although I'm not sure whether like the Holy Spirit was upon them, there are moments in the thing where it talks about where the Holy Spirit came up, like the Spirit of the Lord came upon this yeah. person. Like, well, and this idea of regeneration is taught in the Old Testament. Uh, in Ezekiel uh, 36, 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit a new spirit I'll put within you and remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Deuteronomy talks about how you need to have your heart you need to have your heart circumcised. So there is always this understanding that there has to be like a spiritual <coughs> transformation. Uh, in this passage in John, Jesus says, "You are a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, and you don't know this, right? So if anybody gets into the kingdom of heaven, right, and which would include, let's say, Abraham." Right, he would have to be regenerated in some way. Does that make sense? So doing some back channel reasoning, I think most people would say, yeah, that, that regeneration had to happen. Okay? Then you get into indwelling. And this is where there's a little bit of uh, debate about the Old Testament, but not necessarily the new. Okay, so indwelling is the spirit's continual residence within the saint following the occasion of regeneration. In other words, the spirit resides in the believer forever. So where are we? Yeah? Yeah. However you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, then 1 Corinthians 6.19. Nathan. 
For you do not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Okay, so this is where, um, you know, there, there is some disagreement. But is it possible to be regenerated without subsequently being indwelt? Why or why not? Maybe feeling regenerated is possible without being indwelt. I don't think true regeneration yeah. would happen. Yeah, and there, seem, there seems to be this <coughs> continuity between being washed, you know, being given a new spirit, right? And then that spirit's continual residence being within you from that point on. Um, now, some people would look at, I forgot which psalm it is, but when G David says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, um, there might be a question where they would say, yeah, the Old Testament believers were indwelled with the spirit, but the spirit could lead them uh, at the same time. And we'll talk, and I think there's probably a better explanation of that, uh, passage then you know he lost the indwelling does that make sense now I just to be clear there are some ministries that are different in the New Testament <coughs> I at this point and I could be talked out of this do not think that indwelling uh, is one of those differences um, then you have sealing uh, Andrew uh, this is the, the spirit is a pledge or a guarantee that the believer will enter into his completed redemption at the return of, of Christ. It's the deposit that the Lord has placed within you, which he will reclaim when he returns. Okay, so this sealing makes indwelling permanent, right? Once you're indwelled by the spirit, the spirit never leaves. And when God takes the Holy Spirit home, you will go with him to your home too. Okay, so 2 Corinthians one twenty two, Andrew? Who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Okay, and then <clears throat> Ephesians one thirteen through 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, okay. who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view of the to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Okay. So the question is, is it possible to be regenerated and indwelt without subsequently being sealed? Why or why not? You guys have any thoughts on this? Like, you do have that passage, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, which seems to indicate that that might be the case. But what might be the counter-argument to that? I think there's this usage of the word, uh, having been mm -hmm. or having also believed mm -hmm. um, I'm not a you know English genius but mm -hmm. from what I remember having leading to something implies that there's a necessity for the first mm -hmm. or for, for something to happen before something else can happen uh -huh. so having done this then this occurred yeah. and so there's again it's just there's a, ne there's a necessity for one to there's a prerequisite for one or the other. Yeah, you can't be sealed unless you're indwelled, right? Like if the Spirit's not indwelling in you, you can't be sealed. <clears throat> and you can't be indwelt unless you're regenerated and the Spirit comes upon you, right? There, there's a backwards link to all of those, right? So again, these are some theological deductions that I'm making here. Um, there are some biblical texts that would challenge that, but we'll talk about how to work that out in a little bit.
So um, understanding that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit gives us great comfort in knowing that the Lord will come back for us. Um, and by the way, I forgot to give you the implication of, of indwelling, right? Our bodies host the third person of the Trinity. Thus we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God with all of his power, wisdom, and goodness actually takes up residence within us. Subsequently, his power in, with his power in immediate proximity, we can conquer sin and triumph over temptation. Okay, now we get into something a little bit more variable. Okay, filled. An act whereby an individual's life is controlled and directed by the spirit of God as opposed to the flesh. This manifests itself outwardly in an obedient walk with the Lord. So, where are we? Paula, are we on you? Yep. Yeah. Uh, and do not give blame to blame for that dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. Okay. And then you have Galatians 5.16. But I say walk. <clears throat> but I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Okay. So being filled, I yeah the the contrast with being drunk with wine, and being filled with the Spirit, is like whose influence are you under, right? You know, when somebody is drunk with wine, they're under the influence of wine, right? They make decisions in light of that intoxication. Uh, the idea with the Holy Spirit is that you're actually guided by the Spirit, guided by His will. Uh, walking by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit is basically um, letting the Spirit basically have control, right? Doing His will, doing what He wants you to do. Now, is it possible for an Old Testament saint to be filled with the Spirit? Yeah, right? I mean, how else do you explain their obedience, right? Being driven to do the Spirit's will. Uh, so being filled with the Spirit is not necessarily an everyday occurrence for Christians, right? It occurs when the Christian continually repents of their sin, <coughs> seeks right standing with God, and walks obediently with the Father. When this happens, they enjoy close fellowship with the Father and are empowered to live the Christian life. So now we're going to get to um, uh, what I believe are the distinguishing marks for the New Testament. The first one is baptizing. Okay? This would be a clear new work. Uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in placing the believer into union with Christ as a head and with other <coughs> believers as the body of Christ. So 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Um, Andy, you got that? Yep. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Okay. Galatians 3, 27. Ashton. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Then, Judy, can you get uh, Ephesians 4 5? You see that? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Okay. So, what must be formed for the believer to be baptized into Christ? Salvation. Salvation, right? Okay. So again, it's the work of the Holy Spirit placing a believer into union with Christ as the head, right? So to be united with Christ, what had to happen first? What? You had to repent. Okay, that is true. But the union with Christ is a kind of a big deal, right? So being baptized with, if you have to be baptized into Christ, is it fair to say that Christ has to be resurrected? 
right, and ascend into heaven. So part of being baptized with Christ is to be placed into something called the church. Uh, before, the, the community of faith was really you know, the nation of Israel. That was kind of the covenant community. And you were placed into it by many of these rites. You would be circumcised. And the idea that you can be part of the community of faith without being circumcised or eating kosher was a radical concept for the Jews. Right? A Gentile would have to convert to Judaism to be a part of that community. And so as we keep on reading through Acts, every time we have like this new frontier, like they're to go to Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, uh, you will have maybe a visible manifestation where the Samaritans, the first wave of Samaritans, when they believed, they actually spoke in tongues and demonstrated that they were baptized by the Holy Spirit. So that everyone were to say, you know, what happened to us at Pentecost happened to them. Samaritans are in. And then later on, you would have, uh, um, you know, Gentiles, Cornelius, he and his household were baptized by the Holy Spirit, so it's very clear that they're in, right? They're included into this body of Christ as they are. They don't have to become Gentiles first. Now, one of the variants there is the disciples of John the Baptist. Remember them? They were, they were basically Old Testament believers. They were actually baptized with the Holy Spirit as well. And I believe that was really kind of a signal that said that Jews, as they are right now, they're not grandfathered in. They have to believe in Jesus Christ as well. So to be part of the church, you have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that's why anybody who is born again has been baptized in the Spirit. So, uh, speaking in tongues was just the initial sign for that time. But all believers, whether you speak in tongues or not, have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. For instance, right, one faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit all were baptized into the body. And what's interesting about that passage in 1 Corinthians is later on, Paul makes it very clear that not everybody has a gift of tongues. Okay? So people who don't speak in tongues are also baptized in the Holy Spirit. Malachi. So I just want to make understand here. So we're saying that baptism is a necessary post requisite to salvation. No, it's something you should do. Okay. Physical Wait, baptism, baptism is something that spirit? you should do. Baptism of the spirit or water baptism? We're talking about water baptism? I was talking about baptism, period, but both both of those. Okay. Can answer both spirit baptism is required, but that's something the spirit does. Water baptism is something you should do, but that ultimately doesn't, um, that's not the means of salvation. Does that make sense? Okay. So basically, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is basically uniting people, Jews and Gentiles, as they are in Christ, right? So that is a new work of the Spirit. It's basically the creation of the church. Yeah, Judy. I have a question. Uh -huh. I was always told that actually you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, but when you're baptized with water, it is an outward showing to mm -hmm. other Christians that you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit? 
It is an outward, yeah, it outwardly shows that. It's basically a step of obedience where, you know, that's what you want to do. Now, when people start saying that you have to be baptized to be saved as a believer, otherwise you're not saved, or you're not baptized by the Spirit unless you're baptized with water, the problem with that is you have a lot of earnest people who, let's say, are infant Baptist. I put R.C. Sproul in that category. Or he is sprinkled as a baby, and he believes he's been faithful to the ordinance of baptism, right? And so that's very different from someone who refuses to get baptized. Like, I know I should, but I won't, right? That's more, those are more rebellion issues, and that's an issue. Um, but if you sincerely believe you're faithful to baptism, even though you might be wrong in the case of infant baptism, I would say that's, that's understandable. That's not rebellion. I would encourage them to be baptized, but I wouldn't say that you're not saved because you haven't been. I think my worthwhile people to know in terms of the spirit baptism mm-hmm. in Pentecostal circles, um, I have a lot of Pentecostal family. Yeah. Theologically, they believe that spirit baptism happens later on after conversion. They think it's two yeah. separate events. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they, they, they believe that you can be saved and in yeah. a sense have the spirit, but spirit baptism is required for like the next step of depth, intimacy, and empowerment for the Christian life. Yeah. And, and that's where 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 12, 13 is actually a really key text to say that's not the case. Yeah. Because the language is of spirit baptism. For in or for by or in one spirit, we have all been baptized into one body. Mm-hmm. And so it actually identifies inclusion in the church as uh, you have to have been baptized in the spirit to be part of God's people. Yeah. But that's the theological undergirding of, of Pentecostals, and there's many of them, so they actually view it as a separate event. So that's the yeah. question is when does it occur and why does it matter? Yeah, and a lot of times with Pentecostals, I think they build a theology on what's described as opposed to what's prescribed. Yeah. And that's where you have to be careful. Yeah. I have another question. Uh-huh. Because, because you're talking about like, like people like, who are like, baptized as if, and I have a question about like people when they get baptized and then they realize, oh, I wasn't truly saved, they convert, would it be good for them to be baptized in a worthy manner, or is that first baptism kind of like cool? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I mean, it, I, if somebody was baptized at eight days old, I would say you do need to get baptized because there's no way an eight-day-old baby can have conscious faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, if somebody was baptized at, let's say, five, I would say, you know, at five years old, it is possible, I think, to have conscious faith in Jesus Christ and... Um, or sometimes people were baptized when they were 12 and then they kind of lived a life of debauchery and rebellion and were they saved during that time? I mean, I think, I think it's more important to say, are you saved now, right? Do you believe now? Are you faithful now? And then I think given enough time, um, if you reach a conclusion that, you know what, I don't think I was saved during that time. Uh, I remember my baptism and now the pastor offered a chocolate bar if I were to get baptized and that's why I did it. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? If there's something like that, then I'd say, by all means, um, go ahead. But um, I think I've just kind of learned that that's, that's a conversation I'm happy to help people have. Um, there's a great book by J.D. Greer called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, where he, he, he was actually baptized four times because he kept on being convinced that he wasn't saved. Then he just got saved and got baptized. So four times he, he got baptized. And, and looking back, he'd say, I was probably saved before the first time. But, you know, I had the period of sin that I dealt with. And that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that I got saved at that moment. Or 
uh, perhaps had a spirit of, you know, just had a real spirit, uh, time of robust spiritual growth. That doesn't mean that you weren't saved before that. Um, I know, but it's kind of a kind of a complicated conversation. But it is different for everyone. I know. Anybody else have some thoughts? Do you have any thoughts on that, Josh? I was baptized as a seminary student. Um, it was a little bit humiliating because I'd actually baptize other people. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but partly that was the question was in my own. I'd been baptized as an eight year old. I made a choice to get baptized. As uh, I years later, as I as I grew in the faith and read the scriptures, it's actually First John talks about the marks of a believer. And I look back and I had a clear conversion when I was fifteen. Like there was a clear before and after, a yeah. repentance of sin, a radical change in my life, and into along the spirit. And so I could look back and I, my conscience wouldn't leave me alone. And I, when I was eight yeah. and I was baptized, I just took, kind of took a bath, I think. So for me, to yeah. have a clear conscience before God, I need to get baptized to obey him and honor him. Uh, yeah. But I'm also very aware of what Dave's saying I agree with. There's a sense of every time you fall into sin doesn't mean you weren't really a believer. So you get baptized yeah. like every three weeks or something. That's not the idea either. Ultimately, the question <laughs> is, am I following Jesus? Yeah. And if your conscience will not let you go and you really think that you weren't a believer when you were baptized, then... Honor the Lord with your conscience. Yeah. And that's kind of my best practices, too. It's like, I'm not going to tell you you need to, you know, unless it's very clear that you weren't. Yeah. Like, I was a baby. Um, and if you were five years old, I mean, I'd have questions, but but I wouldn't want to, you know, baptize anybody four times. Like, oh, you just got saved again, or you realize you weren't a Christian before that. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to pause there, and we'll talk about empowering next week. So let me pray. Father, I thank you for uh, just this time to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that this week we'll be especially aware of his presence within us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that um, you you will help us to understand and embrace the teaching that will be ministered to you in a very special way as Nate Phipps brings us the Word of God. Uh, We pray for the unity of the Spirit of this congregation as we fellowship and and, um, and encourage and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.